It's Jared. So I'm just going to come out and say it. 2020 has been one insane year. I was recently looking back at all the things that have happened since January from Kobe Bryant dying to Australian brush fires to increasing tensions with Iran. And then obviously COVID-19 changes the narrative. And now Black Lives Matter protests are kind of the, the most recent thing on everyone's mind. And to me, that's very indicative of the trend that news has been taking in the modern era, which is that it's so fast moving and so fast paced that by the time the media can cover one instance, the next story is already writing itself. And what this means for people like me who do a podcast or just anyone who tries to cover politics in some way is that you're always playing catch up. You're always having to anticipate and find that one story that's going to stay on people's minds. But the downside of that, kind of the disadvantage of that, is that a lot of conversations get cut short. You'll write about a story and before even having the chance to dive in depth to it or track it over time, the next thing is already on everybody's mind. Going back to the example I brought up about the increased nuclear tensions with Iran, right? that's been a developing story for years now. And before anyone could really analyze how the killing of Soleimani changed geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, COVID-19 was already dominating the news. So as Adam and I were talking, we thought, well, hold on. Well, it's important to cover recent news and cover topics that are on people's minds. Sometimes you really need to look back at what you've already covered and see how has this changed in just a short period of time. So as you can probably tell by the title of the episode, today we're going to be doing the first episode in a segment we're calling Second Look which is where myself and Adam will revisit some topics that Contested has already covered and see how have they changed over time and what are the new developments we need to know now that maybe aren't getting the coverage that uh, they probably deserve. Um, so we'll probably do this every few episodes in order to make sure that a conversation is not simply uh, 20 minutes and then gone from your mind forever. But instead, what is changing? How is it changing? and make sure that you stay updated on it. And I think we're really excited for this. This week, we'll be covering Supreme Court since the term just ended, as well as a whole myriad of issues concerning race, BLM, and anti-Semitism briefly. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned. I'm so excited to start our first episode of Second Look, and I'm joined here by Adam Hussein. Hi, everybody. How's it been? <laughs> uh, I think we're all, we're all doing well. But without further ado, let's just hop into it. So as I'd mentioned in the intro of the show, the first thing we're going to cover is the recent Supreme Court decisions specifically regarding the separation of church and state, because a lot of people have posted how concerning this is, and I think we would probably both agree with that to an extent. But we wanted to dive into some of the details, which is one, what are the cases that have led us up to this point? And two, what's going to happen from this point going forward? Because kind of in the spirit of what Jessica had done with LGBTQ law, I think it would be helpful to kind of do the same in some of these most recent cases. So I'll provide just a little bit of a background here, and then Adam will kind of provide an analysis going forward. So the first case we're going to talk about is called Little Sisters of the Poor Saints Peter and Paul Home versus Pennsylvania. And 
that's definitely a mouthful. But what this case generally talks about is birth control coverage as part of the Affordable Care Act and how religious institutions can be exempt from that. But before we have a conversation about this case, it's probably helpful to go back to a previous case, which is Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. And I know these are a bunch of names, but like, just bear with me for a hot sec here. So Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which was in 2014, was a much bigger case in which the court held that any privately held corporation, so anything held by a family or that is not public and owned by stock, can deny birth control coverage to their employees so long as they have a clear and convincing religious exemption. So in this case, Hobby Lobby, which is a store that you've probably seen or may have not because they're not. we were just saying there's not a lot of them in California, but um, or at least in L.A., basically said, no, we're not going to provide birth control coverage as an exemption to the Affordable Care Act. And while that case kind of was the bigger one, this most recent one talks about Trump's actions to expand this even further. So in 2017, Trump directed the Department of Health and Human Services to add a moral exemption, basically saying that any really agency or any organization can make a moral exemption to birth control coverage and under that deny coverage to any of their employees regarding uh, any sort of what they call whole women's health, which can be contraception, birth control, preventative care of some kind. So that leaves us today with this most recent case, the Little Sisters case, in which the court basically decided that this expansion of exemptions is allowed and that more and more women, I think Justice Ginsburg describes it as 70,000 to 126,000 women might lose contraceptive coverage immediately because of this expansion of the moral and religious exemption. So with that said, enough of the kind of nitty gritty details here. What does this mean going forward? And I'll, I'll go to Adam first here. So I think it kind of relates to the age old debate of the separation of church and state. And we obviously have religious freedom and we love that about America. But there is a line to be drawn, in, I think, in my opinion, between the separation of church and state and how much the state can regulate the church. I still think that the state should be able to regulate the church in issues of a general public good. So something like this, which is providing birth control to women, which is obviously a general public good, I think should be regulated. Now, the court obviously didn't agree, but as a society, I think it's an interesting example of how we're slowly kind of moving towards a new wave of religious fanaticism almost. We see this with the president relating back to old Christian ideals that we haven't seen in any government office for a long while. Yeah, I mean, I would probably uh, say something similar. If you are a court watcher, there was a also a case this term that allows or kind of mandates that if you're going to offer some sort of school voucher program that religious schools have to be included as well, which means direct government scholarships for religious education. And I think as Adam had kind of touched on there is there's a larger debate as to kind of the fighting back of religion in a growing secular society. And like what I mean by that is less and less people are attending church or religious services as time goes on. 
but a lot of the people who are are as adam has said become somewhat more fanaticized which isn't inherently a bad thing like being religious in of, of itself to each individual person means something different but as far as what that means is that you're going to see a lot of kind of trying to retain religious influence in the public sphere and i think most people would argue that that's not good in law because that leads to religious persecution and whatnot but it's interesting to see how it's going to kind of continue going forward and i think it's also interesting to note that millennials and gen z are the two least religious generations that we've ever seen in america so government is trying to establish laws that really aren't going to be beneficial to the population moving into the future i don't think a lot of our generation at least the peers that i've interacted with really care that much about having a strong religious foundation within our government in fact they kind of want it completely separate and so kind of this government's push to establish religion and unify it with gov is uh interesting considering that moving forward in the generations it's really not going to be the the majority view the other case that we wanted to touch on which was released the same day by the supreme court is slightly different but along the same vein of thought which is our lady of guadalupe school versus morrissey Baru, which is again a mouthful but the basic idea here is slightly different which is a secular teacher at a Christian school, so this would be like a math teacher at a religious school, tried bringing an age discrimination suit against the Our Lady of Guadalupe school. However, under in a previous case, the court decided that there's something called the ministerial exemption for certain discrimination cases, which means that if you are a member of the clergy or a member of a religious, you know, in the religious profession, age discrimination, sex discrimination, etc. doesn't really apply because the court is there to determine certain forms of discrimination. And I think me and Adam were talking about this, but in the same way that a priest technically has to be celibate uh, in order to retain priesthood, that's a form of discrimination that we have allowed under the free exercise clause because, yeah, as part, it's religious dogma and it's not really the government's business to tell a religion how to practice their religion. So this kind of creates what's called the ministerial exemption here. However, what the court just ruled in this case is that this ministerial exemption applies to anyone working in a religious function or a religious organization. So even Morrissey Baru in this case is considered a minister, even though she's simply an educational professional who works at a religious school. And the question here more is, to what extent can this kind of go? And in what way can this, again, shield from discrimination in a sense that is anyone who really is involved to any extent in a religious institution a minister? I mean, most people would say that that doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? If you're just someone who works as a receptionist at a temple, a synagogue, a church, you wouldn't consider yourself a minister. But that's kind of what the court is adopting here. Uh, Adam, thoughts? I think it was interesting. I know in our previous conversation, you pointed out the fact that there are certain forms of discrimination that are rooted in religious dogma. But in this specific case, it's about age. She's uh, being discriminated for her age, which really has no basis anywhere in religious dogma. So I think it's giving a free pass to religious institutions here, which I personally don't agree with. I think there has to be a foundation in the religion about why you are discriminating, not to say that 
any sort of religious discrimination is also moral or good or whatever you want to call it. But at least there is some sort of actual backing there. Whereas in this case, there really is none. So, Yeah. And I mean, I think as, as Jessica had pointed out in her case, she had kind of touched on the fact that religion should never be used as kind of a gateway to discrimination, right? I mean, that's kind of a lot of how, a, a lot of why the LGBTQ progress was stunted. And I think as Adam was kind of getting at there is that, yes, I mean, a lot of people will defend homophobia through religious dogma. And the question is, is, well, now if anyone who might be part of the LGBTQ community, who's also involved in the clergy, is basically kind of hit from both sides here, because they can't bring any discrimination suit now under this new definition. And I think that can kind of cause more problems for the LGBTQ community than than the current kind of standing in law already does. And I think, again, the similar analysis for the previous case that we just discussed, to what extent is uh, separation of church and state good versus deregulation of mm. the church by the state? I think there still should be some sort of interest for, uh, on the state's part to make sure the church is non-discriminatory as much as possible. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we will, it's be very interesting to see what happens both in terms of how contraceptive care will change and how discrimination suits will change going forward. But kind of, as we said, the point of second look is to kind of see how the conversation have already changed. And hopefully the successes that this term brought for the LGBTQ community in terms of discrimination lawsuits isn't wiped out by the fact that religious institutions, which have kind of been at the forefront of this discrimination, are now basically exempt from that ruling. So it'll be really interesting to kind of see a year from now, how is this court's actions viewed for the LGBTQ community? But shifting gears a little bit now, we're going to move into probably the topic that's on everyone's mind and has kind of been dominating the news circuit in the past 30 to 40 days. Um, and that's the discussion about social justice, race, policing, Black Lives Matter, and all of it. And the first place we'll start is kind of a more niche aspect of it. But if you are a dedicated listener of Contested, you know that in one of my conversations with Zach Ritter about race in America, we talked about the Jewish community and their bond with the black community and how it's probably been somewhat over romanticized, but to an extent was still a functional part of civil rights. Zach had mentioned that Rabbi Newman was the one who spoke directly before the Eye of a Dream speech and kind of how that shows the kind of the connection and bond there. But in recent news, we see we have seen a whole conversation going on and a very complicated, layered one at that. And this started with Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson, who posted a video in which he quoted Nazi leader Adolf Hitler with the general message of the of the movement being that white people in general have kind of prevented progress for black people but again as part of that was a quote from hitler along with a few other uh, kind of anti-semitic actions and this has triggered probably a bigger a bigger conversation that people might not have initially thought about adam thoughts on this one well obviously condemning the anti-semitism there i don't think it's good to have any sort of you know discrimination or hatred towards any identity I think it's interesting, though, a lot of the backlash has been those that 
are speaking out for racism are now not speaking out for anti-Semitism. And I think there's a, a lot of finger pointing going on mm-hmm. where there's the Jewish community saying, well, the BLM movement and these general social justice movements never include the Jewish community. And the Black Lives Matter movement and all those social justice movements are turning the other way and saying, well, the Jews never support our movements. So it's kind of just saying, well, you did it. No, you did it. And kind of how do we reconcile that? I think it would be great for all oppressed groups to, you know, fight oppression (laughs) together. I think it would be much more effective and get stuff done a lot faster, not playing oppression Olympics and just kind of saying, how can we all work together to make it to make the world society better for everyone? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, as I pointed out, there's a historical kind of backing that underlays this finger pointing. And I think that's a good word there but i think as as most people have seen a lot of this kind of conversation and finger pointing has taken place over social media and that's a conversation we can have another time i think as to the effectiveness of that but yeah i mean at the end of the day i think it should not be a a kind of contest or like as adam was saying oppression olympics or a sort of you need to cover this otherwise you're a bad person or do this and otherwise you're a bad person. And don't take that the wrong way in the sense that like, yes, like call out racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, all those social ills whenever you see them. But also it's probably not the best when people who ultimately have the same goal in mind, which is creating an oppression-less society as possible, spend more time fighting each other than fighting the problem itself. And I think I don't have the answer. I don't think anyone has the answer is how to unite all people together to create this kind of utopia where oppression doesn't exist but definitely in the meanwhile while the Deshaun Jackson incident has pretty much zero support across the board I don't know how much kind of targeting him in specific is going to help either the Jewish community or black community uh, on this one and I think it's interesting that you point out kind of the factions in the general movement I think it transitions perfectly into our next topic if you want to introduce sure so the last one that we'll kind of revisit, and again, shout out to Zach Reiter for kind of that one and maybe forecasting that this kind of conversation would arise once again in the future. But the next one we're going to talk about is something that Bio Collins and Nick Catalano had briefly started touching on right in the wake of the George Floyd incident. And this is a much larger conversation, which is the, the federal law that is currently kind of circulating in the House for policing reform follows what is what on Instagram at least was known as the eight can't wait model, which includes certain policies such as banning chokeholds, requiring all federal law enforcement to wear body cams, and a whole bunch of other, you know, certain disarmament situations, don't shoot first, thing like that. As Adam had told me earlier, President Obama had kind of endorsed this, and a lot of current politicians were kind of rallying around this as the answer to a lot of the recent police brutality calls. But as anyone who's been watching this situation knows, it is far from that simple here. So the first question we wanted to tackle is a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, at least I have been seeing very mixed goals. I mean, obviously the goal is to fight racism everywhere that you see it. I don't think anyone's contesting that. But the question is, is what is the ultimate goal? Is it something like banning chokeholds, which is a more like direct and moderate answer? Or is it defunding and abolishing the police, right? You've also seen that being the call. So as much as the protesting has been going on, I'm still a little 
confused as to the exact goal or there might be multiple but i haven't seemed to narrow in on one i think you pointed out a really interesting distinction the in theory versus in practice of the black lives matter movement and all its general factions i think in theory everyone wants to dismantle racism all these oppressive systems i don't think anyone is disagreeing with that if you're part of a any protest, Black Lives Matter movement, whatever it is. But in practice, how does that look? I mm-hmm. think that's where we get very divisive. So on 8 Can't Wait specifically, I know that a lot of the people were just kind of saying, it doesn't go far enough. And we've tried it in a plethora of cities. And but what has it really done? Has it dismantled systemic racism? Or at least has it ended racism within our police forces? No, I, I don't think it has. But in my mind, if eight can't wait saves one person's life, I personally think it's worth it. Now, I don't think that that means that the fight should stop there. Absolutely not. You know, keep fighting until we do dismantle racism as a whole. And I don't know exactly when that'll happen. There's no end date to that. But if this is a step in the right direction, which in my opinion it is, I don't really understand the argument of it doesn't do enough. I think it's a counterproductive argument to attack any sort of law like this and say it doesn't do enough we're kind of compromising well yes but the compromise doesn't mean we stop keep going but this is a kind of a stepping stone for more uh progressive policies potentially defunding the police could come in the future off of this but if we just don't take this measure first how will we ever springboard to greater measures yeah and i mean i think the i think adam touches one on a really good point that it's probably a step in the right direction But also, I mean, I think this comes to a point where everyone who, not everyone, I mean, I shouldn't say everyone, because there's people who will continue to say that racism isn't a problem, and that's just factually incorrect. But for everyone who admits that racism is a problem, right, which is a large coalition of people, the solutions being proposed is not that same coalition. It's very fractured. And I wonder how... I mean, we, me and Adam are kind of ultimately saying is like, I'm wondering how much this movement will achieve 10 years from now, like looking back at it, right? We see, at least in the civil rights era, while there was definitely societal change, it got the 1964 Civil Rights Act and it got the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which have been groundwork pieces of legislation that are still protecting a lot of groups today, right? That was the basis for the LGBTQ discrimination case. So that's why we look back at the civil rights era at least in its outcomes with fondness, because there's so much good that came out of this. And I think the conversation now is maybe not as intense, but but pretty close, right? This is on almost everyone's mind. And the question is, is what piece of tangible legislation will we see 10 years from now that's continuing to make a change? And I don't know if there's one I can point to. I mean, hopefully, I know Minneapolis in specific is voting to disband the police department. Again, I don't know what that will look like. Obviously, a lot of schools are trying to get rid of school police. Again, don't know what that will look like. And I'm not saying there's one right answer here, right? Defunding the police, if it's done correctly, definitely shows some promise. I think, as Adam said, A can't wait is definitely a step in the right direction. But in the future, when we look back, I'm going to be very interested to see what is that rock that's there? Because as much as we celebrate Martin Luther King, and we definitely should, his legacy in terms of the legislation that he forced John F. Kennedy and LBJ to pass is what continues to protect people, at least on the books today. And it doesn't always work. I'm aware of that. But that's kind of the the thing from that era that continues to work. 
And I think I know you and I had uh, discussed this after listening to the uh, police brutality episode, which is a protest is only as effective as its end goal. Where the civil rights movement and all those protests had a clear piece of legislation that it wanted to pass. And it said, we will keep fighting for our rights until this piece of legislation guarantees that our rights are secured. And lo and behold, they fought until it happened. That's phenomenal. Whereas in this movement, we don't have one key piece of legislation, one act that everyone is rallying around, which then has led to the factions and the division and the divisiveness over what is the policy solution. Yeah, I mean, I would even say the divisiveness and probably lack of focus on that. And that's not to slam protesters. I mean, I'm equally as probably lack of focused on that. But I think the more, as I said, most people are at least on board with the general idea of systemic racism. And I think the more you educate yourself, the more you, more people come to that same conclusion. And yes, education, I think, in itself is a tool as a solution. But at the end of the day, as I was saying, if education was so successful, everyone kind of can read a book and become magically unracist. And that's just not the case. So there does need to be some policy or some sort of government action that ensures protection against things like kneeling on someone's neck for eight minutes, right? That's And maybe just banning chokeholds and neck restraints is a way, but I think most people would agree it's, it's a little bit deeper than that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'm really excited to see what you all thought of Second Look, so please let us know by emailing us at contestedpolitics at gmail.com. And until next week, thank you for helping us understand politics together.